Welcome to Purpose 360. I'm Carol Cohn, and today more than ever before, companies, brands, and their partners need to stand for something beyond the bottom line. I've created this program to provide insights and ideas to share with you so that you can apply them to your work the very next day. The goal here is to up-level your purpose and to benefit companies and society. So please join us. Today, we're going to do something really, really different. In the past, we've interviewed CEOs, CMOs, chief operations officers, strategy officers, um, consultants, uh, authors, academics. Today, we're going to interview a provocateur, and that's Jonathan Atwood. And Jonathan Atwood is a, he was a former client when he was at Unilever. He is um, a friend. He is one of, I believe, the foremost drivers of authentic purpose in companies and brands. And I asked John to join me on the show because we are at an inflection point when we're going back to work from our COVID lockdown. And we're going to talk about why John feels it's a make or break moment for companies. Um, But first, we're going to start with John. So, John, welcome to the show. Thank you, Carol. Pleasure to be here. Oh, it's just a joy. I love this guy. I'm sorry. I just I get so excited that we're going to do this. So I'm going to start with the standard question I always ask. Who is John Atwood? Well, Kel, you had to start with the hard question first, didn't you? Uh, of course. <laughs> because, because you know, the truth is um, the John Atwood you're talking to right now is not the John Atwood that's always been present. Um, very brief summary, you know, uh, graduated college, went to Capitol Hill, worked in politics, became a lobbyist. Things were going along quite nicely. You know, I was your classic... Uh, young guy chasing titles. You rattled off all the titles and you know, that was me. It was how to get up the ladder, keep going, you know, playing the corporate game, if you will. And all that was working quite well uh, on the outside. And on the inside, other things were happening, you know, and if I'm being blunt, and I always am, you are, uh, I was living quite the life of um, self-centered to the extreme. It was about me and not you. Um, and all that changed one fateful Monday night in 1999. I was arrested for drunk driving and I went to jail. And I was in jail uh, two o'clock in the morning, Greenwich, Connecticut. And the police officer said, you can leave now on bail. You have enough money in your wallet. And I said, no, I think I'll stay. And I don't honestly know how those words came out of my mouth. I don't know what was going on, but I said, no, I think I'll stay. And I spent the next five hours having that internal conversation about what do you, what's your next move, big man? Is mm. your next move to leave the jail and keep doing what you're doing? Or is this the moment you're going to do something different? 
And I decided on the latter. And I walked back to my office that mo- that Tuesday morning, wearing the same outfit I had worn the- to work the day before. I walked into my off- my boss's office and I said, I have an alcohol problem and I need help. And he turned to me and said, what are you going to do about it? And I said, whatever it takes. And that led me on, uh, you know, the big transformation of me. Um, 22 years sober as we speak. And more importantly, uh, it became not about me, but about we. It became about like, who am I going to truly be for the rest of my life? Am I going to continue to be that person chasing titles and doing the game? Or am I going to do a different game, which is playing for what, what I would call is kind of the collective good, if you will. And so 13, 13 years or so went by until I took a, a program on discovering my personal purpose at Unilever. Unilever put, put all the vice presidents through a program. And it was very intense. And it was a week long. And honestly, Carol, you know, 13 years after the event, I'm 13 years sober at that point, I started telling the old story until someone that was, that was facilitating the program said, Jonathan, uh, that's not really, really what's going on, is it? And I said, no. Why don't you tell all of us what the real story is? And it was at that moment that I discovered my personal purpose, which was about giving a voice to those who don't have one. And um, it, it's led me to this, this life of, you know, shortly after getting my personal purpose in Singapore during that program, I came back to Unilever North America in Englewood Cliffs, New Jersey. And we were talking about bringing all the employees to a similar workshop. And we were all sitting around a table and I don't know what came out of my mouth, but it did. I told the CEO that I would tell my story on the stage at the town hall with all employees. And I told that story about being in jail on stage and what it meant for me and what it made me think about and how it changed my life and how, you know, I was trying to then, you know, live very authentically. I'll tell you who I am with, you know, with no reservation. And the most amazing thing happened, Carol. The most amazing thing was that after I told my story, hundreds of employees over the next two years asked for 15 minutes with me. And what they did was they came into my office and they, they usually started with, I have a friend, and they would tell me a story. And by the end, I'd say, why are you telling me this story? And I don't think it's your friend. I think it's you. And they'd say, how did you know that? And I said, well, <laughs> figure out who you're dealing with here. You know, um, that, I was that guy. I was the guy not telling the real story. And they would say, because you told it. Simply because you told your story on stage and you had the courage to do that, I'm in your office right now telling you my story. And that's what I think it's all about. That's what I really think is going on in in corporations is, particularly in corporations, but I think it could be in nonprofits or any other organization. And that is people are looking for for safe spaces to be heard, right? And, you know, that's that's, that started me on this journey and I've refined and I've refined and I've refined my purpose. You know, the words, my purpose has always been the same, but my words are a little bit different now. And now it's a lot about helping people to navigate both the both the descent and the ascent of the climb, right? It's a biking metaphor, but it's I could take you I could take you to I can go into that dark place and hear your dark story, but I'm also now well equipped to talk about how did I get out of there? This is a this is a significant unlock personally for you, and then you in our side conversations are talking about companies 
And then if companies can embrace an authentic way to unlock the true energy, the true potential, you know, they're always saying, oh, yeah, we want to unlock the potential. Come here, join us, et cetera. But I but we talk you talk to me a lot about it's it's a patina. It's not really deep. So here's what I'd love to do, because I want to talk a little bit about your time at Unilever before we get to the really the back to work paradigm and tipping point we're at. So just tell me, why is getting to this unlock so important for companies? I think we we get a sense for you. It's really allowed you to be who you are. But why is that important for companies today? To me, the most important thing, you know, the backdrop that I, that I was confronting was I was always being presented with the employee engagement survey scores. And it would tell a story, always anonymous, about, you know, the health of the organization. And yet I was always sitting there thinking to myself, that's not really what's happening here. If you're truly in dialogue with your employees, there's a different story going on. There's different hopes and fears and dreams going on. They want to have their voice heard. Why is it only certain people get their stories told? Why is it only certain people talking all the time? And so what, what, what I think it is the most important is if you can unlock the uniqueness of the individuals that make up a company, whether it's a big company or a medium-sized company or a small company, if you can unlock that energy, if you can actually put meat behind the banner that says, bring your whole self to work, I always laugh at that sign because most companies that I've been in, they say that on the wall and it's not actually what's going on. So if you can unlock that and have people actually bring their uniqueness to the forefront, you unleash all of this potential. You unleash all of this passion. You, un- you can create teams that are by design, the right people are on the team on the project that you need done based on what they can do. They're living in their sweet spot. We all know what Carol's sweet spot is and therefore she's been brought in to do that work, mm. right? To me, it's about unlocking the, the truth of who makes up the company. Ah, unlocking the truth. That's a great line. Unlocking the truth who makes up the company. Right. And companies are just a, they're just a collection of individuals. But I always feel like you got to unleash it. You got to have the courage to unleash that passion, that, Mm -hmm. you know, that curiosity, that innovation. You got to unleash it to get the maximum value out of it. That's fabulous. So we're going to get to more of the return to work in the second part of this conversation. I know Unilever and your role at Unilever, you were vice president of communications for North America, as well as head of sustainability. And then you went on, I know, to do global supply chain. Right. Talk a little bit about just people need to know that you were that also you were at Kraft in Asia. So just talk about your resume so people know your roles. And then I want you to get into Unilever, because this whole point about how did you have the courage to do what you were doing there? Yeah, my 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 resume kind of I, I would say that I was a corporate affairs professional um, for the first part of my career, including craft, uh, government relations, communications. Um, I wasn't in the sustainability space at craft uh, until the end, and then I got very involved in commodity sustainability, particularly cocoa and coffee. Um, and then I went to work on, on on a consulting project related to an issue in Africa related to child labor, worst forms of child labor. So it was, I would say, at some level, crisis management with some government relations around it. 
you know, I was living in Vermont at the time as a consultant, um, and I got the call from from Unilever, you know, and I I was confronted with with the narrative of four CEOs in three years, a business that was not performing, a culture and morale uh, at the company that was not where it needed to be, and I was the new guy. Uh, you know, I was brought in to kind of change things up, and you know, I, I brought my purpose to the forefront at the beginning. Uh, I needed to create a sustainability framework. It was UniWho at that point. It was, you know, <laughs> right. Unilever was a house of brands, but, no, you know, Unilever was not on the pack, was not on the ads. So it was a collection of brands, but they weren't connected to anything. And so one of my roles was, you know, to start to put a little bit of uh, context around, you know, changing the UniWho to Unilever. One of them was around creating a sustainability framework. We could have done a lot of things, and we made some very distinct choices about where we would focus our attention, uh, with a heavy emphasis around sustainable agriculture, given the food business that Unilever's in. Um, but I would say that my biggest impact was to begin to talk about purpose, you know, because Unilever has a model around very clear corporate purpose, some very clear brand purposes, and where I thought I could really leverage my skills was to really put some emphasis around this personal purpose uh, and the conversation about bringing your whole self to work, bring your authentic self to work, you know, enunciate what, the, what those things are. And it was my, you know, it was my thought at the time that if, if, if I could start to, to unleash that power within Unilever North America, things would happen. Brands would grow. Brands would be more creative, you know, uh, I created a group called the Hand Raisers, which, which simply people, it, it is what it was, you know, exactly as it sounds. I just, I created a group to say, if you're interested in helping on the sustainability journey, show up in room 300 at two o'clock. <laughs> and I, when I got there, I had no agenda. I just wanted to see who would show up. I thought I might be talking to myself. 300 people showed up. <gasps> that's that's and, fabulous. You know, it was like, we went around the room and what's the agenda? The agenda is introduce yourself and just answer the simple question. Why'd you come today? Yeah, it's great. And in, in the space of an hour of people just telling a little bit about what they were interested in, my my goodness, it, you know, number my big revelation was we've never been asked before. We've never yeah. been asked before. That's about the, what we I call it a yeah, BGO, blinding glimpse of the obvious. We're never right. asked. And then we created subgroups out of the hand raisers of, of different topics that people wanted to focus on, whether it was the plastic uh, packaging in the in the cafeteria to um, you know. We want it. We want a community garden out in front of the building. And, mm. you, you know, all of a sudden it, it wasn't by rank. It wasn't by title. It was by passion. And it, and it unleashed all of this new energy in the organization saying, I matter. My voice, my voice is being heard. And, you know, I can, I can meet people this way. I can network this way, but I can also work on something that really matters to the company. And I want to, I want to build on mattering. Because in your other speeches and when we talk, you always talk about that you want to work on things that are big and things that matter. And can you elaborate upon that? Because obviously Unilever has done big things that matter. So talk a little bit about how does that come about? Because I think you've got so many listeners going, you know, everyone you and I talk to, they want to be Unilever. They want to be like Unilever. But as you know, there's big things and small things. So talk about a little bit, some insights on one, how do you pick big things? Two, how do you find things that matter to really bring an authentic purpose to life? 
Yeah. So just a little bit of context about what matters. It's it, it goes back to a little bit of my personal story. And I was reflecting at one point early on when I was at Unilever, I was traveling three weeks of the month. You know, I was doing what what typical corporate executives do, running around meetings, working 20 hours a day. And I started having this thought about, you know, my son is uh, at that point, 13 years old, five years from now, I'll be driving him to college. And he'll ask me, where have you been? Mm. Where have you been all this time? And if the answer is, well, I was filling out charts and I was, you know, creating great PowerPoints and I was doing all this stuff, that would be the wrong answer. That wouldn't feel very good. I wanted to be able to create a narrative that I could tell my son that I was, I was a part of a number of collaborations that changed everything, that took on the hard issues, right? It was never Unilever alone. It was always Unilever in collaboration, but it was on issues that were very, very difficult. And so when at Unilever, you know, goal setting is very interesting, particularly in the sustainability space, because it, it's usually around the logic that says, if what you're talking, if you know how to do what you're about to talk, you know, what goal you've just said, if you know how to do that, it's too small. <laughs> the goal that really makes you both scared and excited at the same time is when purpose shows up and when big things happen. So we were consistently creating goals that were in spaces that other people had not talked about or were on issues of global importance. We would have timelines that may have you know, been pulled forward from where other people were talking. And by their very design, they required Unilever to be in collaboration with others. If you create a goal that, that, that you can do alone, our mindset was it's too small. It's simply too small. And do you, just a question about other companies today, all the companies that want to be like Unilever, are they setting the, the bar too low because they can get things done and um, I just question that that's my point of view. My point of view is, you know, I want when my purpose shows up, when when the corporate purpose shows up at Unilever, it's when a bunch of people have both conditions true at the same time, which is they're scared about how to get it done. And they're absolutely at the edge of excitement around the possibility. So it's not one or the other. It's not simply being told by somebody, here's your goal, and I'm, I'm absolutely mortified and scared about how to get that done. I need both conditions to be true at the same time, right? Yeah. And when, when you get to that, and then you get around a bunch of people that are feeling the same thing, all of a sudden, the conversation changes. You start to create uncommon partnerships. You start to think about who are the best collaborators in this space? Who's going to talk a lot and not really participate? And who's going to work? like crazy side by side to get it done. Talk about one or two of the brands per se that went through that fear but excitement. And then what did they do? You know, one example would be Hellman's. Hellman's mayonnaise, you know, the top commodity in the ingredient panel is soybeans, primarily grown in Iowa. It's a big commodity. Um, there's a lot of issues, obviously, in agriculture in Iowa. And the idea was that they wanted to create a sustainable agriculture goal around soybeans. And, you know, Unilever needed to include folks like Cargill and ADM, but most importantly, they needed to engage the farmers of Iowa. And honestly, on paper, it probably sounds like it was fairly easy, right? You just show up in Iowa, we're, we're, we're Hellman's, 
you know, the truth is when you go to the, when you go on the ground in Iowa, most of the farmers had no idea where the soybeans actually ended up. Ah. We're here from Hellman's, uh-huh. you know? And so we had to go down to Iowa and, and start to put the, a coalition of farmers that were willing to play a different game. And it didn't work, Carol. The first f- number of times you went down there, they basically said, we've been doing this for seven generations. We know how to do this a lot better than you do. Leave us alone. Until we found one farmer who said, I want to play. And it happened to be a, a person that had a big voice in the community. Mm-hmm. He also had run a multi-generational farm, but he, but he wanted to do something different. And for him, it was about the next generation, his, grand, uh-huh. his grandkids. It was all about, and I want to take a risk and I'll try something different. And how did you find that person? We kept talking and talking and talking as you. So you were persistent and you just kept on it. Persistent. And then we had to go down and visit. And then we had to sit down and have lunch and dinner with his family, his extended family. I mean, he was testing us as much as we were testing him, you know, and then it was like, are these, are these folks here for, you know, a PR exercise? Are they here to actually do the work? And we kept going back and we kept going back and we kept going back. And, and, you know, as, as it always happens in life, right. It's always about trust in a relationship. Mm-hmm. Like we're going to do what we say we're going to do. We're going to be here through the, through the hard times and the good times. And it's going to be a multi-year program. So who from Unilever was at that kitchen table sharing a meal with that farmer? Was it you and who else? And a few folks from my sustainable agriculture team at the start. And then it was, uh, you know, then it was me back to the brand at Hellman's. And I, you know, the discovery was that many of the brand marketers that were doing the marketing around Hellman's um, number one, had never been to Iowa. Number two, weren't quite sure all that much about what's how soybeans were grown. And so, of course, I then set up a trip for the marketers to go to Iowa. And, you know, you can talk a good game in your office in New Jersey, but let's get on to Iowa. It was a walkabout. I always talk about you have to get out there. And then yeah. the third part of that was it's time for the CEO to come down. Really? And so the CEO of Unilever North America and I took a trip down there and we had the same routine. We had the meal with the farmer and his family. We went on top of his silo and looked over his whole farm. We had a conversation about what we were trying to do and why. And it was at that, I think it was during that conversation that we started having a conversation internally around why don't, why aren't we featuring these farmers in, in the Hellman's ads? Why aren't we letting them have the voice here about, you know, the care, the, the care that goes into the growing of the soybeans that now make up Hellman's, right? And six months later or so, there was the first farmer in the, in the, in the first ad. So this sounds magical. And this sounds like, oh, my God, John's amazing. He's the Pied Piper. Everybody follows him. It was not a straight line. So what did you what happened when you were getting no's internally, whether from management or from the brand team? What how did you get around it? You know, Carol, you you, you know, the no's from management. You know, my life feels like it's been largely about no's. It's been more about no's than yeses. Right. And I just I, I, I in my heart. And I, and I didn't pretend to be the person that knew the most about Iowa. I, I was on a learning journey of my own. But what I did know was that there was, there was a potential here to be, this is the way to differentiate helmets. This was to, a way to engage the organization in a conversation around Iowa. There were video assets about what happened in Iowa that everybody then felt like they were on the farm themselves, right? So there was an internal piece. I just, I'm relentless, right? And you are relentless. When yes, you hear you my voice, when I get into that scared <laughs> yes. and excited place, And I had a very tight set of goals of what I wanted to accomplish. And I wanted to unlock Iowa. And I had two other things that I was working on. 
it wasn't like I had 70 things to do. I wanted to get a few things done and I knew it was going to be up and down, up and down, right? And I just said, it's worth it. I never questioned whether we were on the right journey. It was who, who, who else do we need? Who else do we need in this conversation? Who, what expert do we need to come in and, and help us here? Right. I, the big unlock down there for me, Carol, was I had never been in a combine in my life. And <laughs> I got in a combine and I got right. to sit in the seat and see what the farmer saw. And I didn't understand that they had all this, it was all computerized. He knew exactly what the moisture content of the soil was. He knew exactly where the seeds were going. He, all of that. He knew everything. And yet we hadn't tapped into that knowledge. He had log books going back 20 years of the farm itself. What years were productive? What years weren't? We started to kind of collaborate here in a way that was like magical. So I was on a learning journey, but I was also trying to also be the communicator back to the organization saying, why is this important? If you think we're going to get results out of this and you're going to, you're going to see helmet sales go up 15% in the next two years, you're not, you're not really thinking about what we're thinking about. This is, a, this is the right thing to do to start with. This is a long-term journey. This is including the farmer in a story that hasn't been included before. And then, you know, then we started to light up the people that were actually making helmets in Chicago in the plant because they didn't know, they didn't know this story. So you start to connect people to, this is what we make, this is how we make it, and this is why it matters. And so your point there was was sustainable agriculture. Yep. Yeah. Um, now, didn't, I, as I recall, wasn't cage-free eggs also part of Hellman's? Yes, it was. Yes, it and was. And so was they, that before the sustainable ag, or was it, it was another about, layer? It was, it was about the same time as I remember, but, you know, a very, a very, a very unique story. I mean, the, you know, Hellman's made a commitment about cage-free b- before most companies did, you know, and the internal conversation was, if we go cage-free, you know, there's an upcharge to the eggs. Therefore, it puts us at a, at a financial disadvantage. And the point was that we were making was, that may be true now, but when we do this right and, we're, and we really unlock this, the, the, the financial benefit will come when we're the leader, when we're, you know, we're out in front we get the benefit of being out in front. And how difficult was that to sell into the brand team? They're, they're all difficult conversations, right, Carol? I mean, none of these are easy conversations because you're talking about margin. You're talking about, you, you know, things that, doing things that the way it, it was, a, it was different than the way we had been doing things. So it was like, I got to be careful that I don't confuse the markers and put too many things in front. But, you know, right down to, it sounds simple, Let's go through the ingredient panel of Hellman's. Let's have a meeting and simply put that on the wall. And let's go through each thing in, on the ingredient panel and understand what it is, what the function of it is, where does it come from, how much do we buy, how much does it cost, and where are the opportunities? What really matters off that list? Don't go to, don't go to the 19th thing on the ingredient panel. Soybeans is number one. So if you're not addressing soybeans, mm, anything right. else you're doing doesn't really matter. Eggs is number two, right? Great. And yes. so there it is. And it was like, that's why it's relevant. And there's an opportunity here. I love the way you did that because you're saying you're, you're, there's it's too much you could do. Of so you're, you're really educating the teams, take the number one ingredient, then take the number two ingredient. Don't try and solve everything at once. So that is fabulous. Is, is there um, any other key learnings from Hellman's? Because I think for our listeners, they're going to go, oh my God, I just got this amazing kind of the gold key. It's not easy but I'm learning how to unlock what is that special essence of a brand. Um, so anything else in the Hellman's case that you would want to share? 
Hellman's been around a long time. I, you know, I think that at some level, you know, the brand marketing was was about the, you know, was about its history. I think it, I think that a lot of the work we did around sustainability, you know, led to a conversation around nutrition related to, to Hellman's. It started to it started to dimensionalize the brand in a way that it had not been dimensionalized. Because you so you unpacked the various layers and levels and what went in, especially the hands, the hands in the soil, albeit they've got combines and maybe they're not touching the soil as much, but you unlocked it all. It wasn't just a glossy picture. No, it, you know, it led to the conversation about who is Richard Hellman and how, yeah. did, how was this brand created, you know, in New York City? And it led to this whole thing, you know, this whole idea that they, they want, you know, Hellman's wanted to break the world record for the largest picnic table. The longest picnic table. Uh-huh, right. And they did break it at 321 feet or wherever it was. And but the point was everybody's welcome at our table. Lovely. Right. Yes. And so this idea about like, look at look at Hellman's as a brand. Look at the consumer. Look at the farmer. You know, look at the mother serving it at home with the sandwich. Look at the children's reaction that you know, it starts to dimensionalize it in a different right. way. And right. the stories are all authentic. In this crazy world we're in right now, where fast, fast, got to get it done. You took time. You unpacked. You took the team there. They all of a sudden had this huge epiphany of what they were seeing and feeling and hearing. How do you encourage or educate the teams? Because I've got some clients right now that I want the answer tomorrow. And they don't want to do the hard work. How do you convince them to do the hard work? I think I think the hard work is based on the goal itself, right? In other words, when you create when you create transparent goals with clarity as to why they've been created the way they've been created, what difference they'll make, give, give everybody an idea about how long it will take, give everybody a clear idea about what milestones you're going to hit, right? In Iowa, it was about acreage. How many acres could we bring on each year? Oh, right? great. It okay. wasn't like we went from zero acres to 10 million acres. You're right. talking about people, the farm, soybean farmers are typically running farms that are 10,000 acres plus. We're not talking about someone that's running 500 acres. And so, you know, there's a scale, but you've got to prove out the system, right? Stay with us. This is going to be important. We're going to transform the way soybeans are, are grown in Iowa. We're going to transform Iowa. That's <laughs> the story. But you can't just go from one place to another place quickly. Is it easy? No, Carol. But again, Patience in this space, if the goal is big enough and you can create milestones along the way, everybody can stay excited, right? Everybody stays excited and they understand the journey. I had years of setback. We set a goal and we didn't make it. We didn't turn back. We dug in, right? We just dug in more and saying, what, so what's the unlock? Oh, we have to look at some other states now besides Iowa. So we start looking at other states and how's that going to work? It's just, to me, you're so right. Everything has become fast and deliver tomorrow. And, you know, if you can actually do that, I would then challenge whether the goal is big enough, right? Or whether the goal is clear enough. Or authentic enough. Or authentic because, enough. I mean, the amount of purpose washing, greenwashing, it's horrible out there. Is it going to really matter? If you can do it tomorrow, is that really going to matter and change everything? For the long term, too. That's right. You know, it could be a short term promotion, but it's not really going to like really. So you're talking about systems change. Absolutely. You know, and our, our mindset around setting goals was, you know, the other lens was, will it transform the system? Is it a nice to do? And it might have, you know, a little bit of value. 
uh, or will it will it transform systems? And Unilever's you know mindset is they engage in activities that have the potential to transform a whole system, whether it's in packaging and plastics, whether it's sustainable agriculture. Can 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 Unilever be a part of something that transforms everything? Okay, so I want to jump to Lifebuoy and their hand washing campaign. Yep. Um, initiative. It's not a campaign. It's the largest in the world. Just talk. A lot of it's about India um, and the developing world. Can you just talk a little bit about that? Because it is so profound. It saves lives. So can we switch to that one just for a little bit? Because it's, it's just wonderful. And it goes back to actually the founding story of, of you know, what Le- Mr. Lever did. Yeah. So could you talk a little bit about that? Lord Leverholm, you know, when when Unilever was being created in, in, you know, Victorian England, it was, you know, the purpose was all about making hygiene commonplace because people were dying of hygiene issues. Right. And Paul Pullman, in his in his brilliance, created the next iteration, if you will. And, and Unilever's purpose became about making sustainable living commonplace. Right. So you broadened out what was already there. It wasn't it went to the origin story and then you broadened it out for today. Brilliant. Right. And, you know, I always struggled in the Lifebuoy story because Lifebuoy wasn't being, wasn't sold in North America. It was always the story that was being told over there. But I got very interested as, as a student of the story, you know, because it was very clear in its mission. And it was the number of kids, you know, that were dying every single day from, you know, diseases, if you will, that 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 could have been that could have been stopped with the simple act of hand washing. It was, it was, you know, a big number of deaths with the solve being fairly simple. And so Lifebuoy very authentically created, you know, this program uh, and, and its own purpose around hygiene and saving children's lives, right? And created all this programming around actual education. You know, I believe it to be true that, you know, there was a, there was a scientist, PhD, uh, and she was one of only two people in the world that had a PhD in handwashing. Really? Right. And she was very engaged in the development of the Lifebuoy program and the education and on the ground. Right. So it was based on what would work. And so who was the person that went and found that person? That wasn't easy to find. No. A brand person? Or was it yourself? No, it was not. My, and I had very little to do with the Lifebuoy execution because it was done primarily out of India, as you said. Yeah. But it was, you know, what I loved about Lifebuoy was the marriage between authentic communication around what's the issue. And you've seen the life boy videos uh, uh, really yeah. do really do the work right around the emotion coupled with very, very, very detailed tactical execution about how to actually bring it to the masses in the communities that needed it. Right. Working in conjunction with governments talking about building out latrines and toilets, you know, you know, the whole, the whole package, bringing it into schools and just building, 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 scaling, building, you know, it was just amazing, but it was all based on, you know, the human truth of we could prevent this. Our product can prevent 5 million children a year dying. Right. Mm-hmm. You know, if that doesn't move you, you know, I don't know what does, because for me, you know, that's a very simple proposition. We have the ability to have an impact on 5 million children. We have a product that solves that issue. It's simply now going to be a question of how much passion about execution do we have to actually make it work. 
that TV spot, which is so beautiful. It's a, it, it's about a, you want to explain it because um, it, it's just so emotional. I use it in my speeches all for years. So just ca- see if you can paint the picture with, and we're going to put it in the show notes. We'll put it, we'll put a link. Uh, I mean, notes. you know, the picture is that they're, they're driving by in, in rural India and they're on a bus and a young girl steps off the bus and takes the hand of a, of an elder and takes him on this long journey. And what I love about the ad is you're not quite sure what the ad's about. You know, for the longest time, as you know, Carol, in the ad, you're not quite sure how this is all going to end, right? And, you know, it's the story of the five-year-old. And so this this woman takes this guy on a long walk and and they go in and there's a, there's a very, very touching ceremony. And it ends with, here's a, here's a child that has reached the age of five. This community had been decimated by children not reaching the age of five. And I'm not doing justice to the to the human emotion in the ad, although I get worked up when I talk about it, because I can see it in my mind. You know, I'm watching it on the screen. And it and it's this, it, it's it's just beautifully creative, but it's human at the deepest level. And the celebration is about the fact, a very simple fact for all of us in the West, simply build a child reaching the age of five. Five. I know it's incredible. And um, so yes, we'll put that in the in the show notes. Um, and it's amazing that the purpose that came out of the core superhuman power of that brand became the content for the ad versus the ad making something up and then saying, okay, now publicize this thing. And that's again, one of the the true tenets of authenticity. So, so that's great. So here's what we're going to do because we've had this incredible conversation and we haven't even gotten about returning to the office. Um, so I am going to make this into a two-parter. So the first part is about John, who he is and such, and then talking about his experience at Unilever. Before we leave Unilever, and I know you could talk about this for hours, are there any other like five key tenets of what you learned at Unilever? Because you left. When Paul left, you left. That looked like the whole team looked like they went to other situations. But, you know, everybody wants to know what are the keys to success that Unilever implemented? So can you share any more before we then talk about going back to the office. I, I, I would say, and we talked about some of them, I would say the goal setting model and mentality is, is really, really important. Clarity about what, what will be, what will be worked on, why it's important. And, you know, Carol, what often does not get talked about is having a narrative around why you did not choose to do certain things and being clear about that. Right. So we had, a, we, we could have done 50 things. We chose three. What's the narrative around why the other 47 were not chosen, right? What difference will the three goals that you've chosen to do, what difference will they make? Number two would be around stakeholder engagement. And Unilever is a big believer at its core about engaging with all stakeholders in a very transparent and open way. The difficult conversations. It doesn't hire consultants to go have difficult conversations with stakeholders. It doesn't themselves. And the learnings that come out of that, one, it, it creates trust. And two, you, you learn a lot. You learn a lot about why a, a certain stakeholder thinks the way they do. They may have the right information and have a good point, which we'd have to acknowledge, or they may have the narrative wrong. Mm, okay. it, needs to be, it needs to be corrected. Or it might be that, that the simple outcome of the meeting is, I'm, I'm very glad that we heard from each other. Let's continue the conversation. We'll keep you updated on how we're doing. 
we'll have frequent updates as to where we are on the journey. And, you know, that's important. I, I think the other, you know, the other thing is the power of we, you know, and everybody talks about it, but when you can truly unlock an organization around a common purpose, everybody understands the purpose, right? They understand what the words mean. They understand how their own personal story relates to that purpose. And they, you know, and the message comes from leaders, but it comes from others within the organization. It's not simply a cascade process where the leaders talk about it and everybody else follows. Everybody kind of understands that at some level, how do they best bring their own purpose into the story related to the Unilever purpose? How do they show up as a human being? Where are their talents being best utilized, right? Knowing that they work for an organization that is open to having all voices heard, truly heard, right? We may not always want to hear exactly what they're saying. You know, I, I, I often would have young people who join Unilever say to me quietly, you know, I joined Unilever because of the purpose of the company. I've been here nine months. And at some level, John, Jonathan, you know, I think that you're not really doing what you say you're doing. And I'd say, what do you mean? And they say, why are we still using plastic clamshells in the cafeteria? I thought you said we cared about sustainability and, and, and the environment. And, and I'd say, okay, let me put that on a list. It's, you know, when you start to get down into the detail and have the real conversation with employees, the unlocks are all there. They're all there, but lots of people aren't noticing them. Oh. Why, you know, I had the employee that asked me, came up to me and said, why is it that when I work late, I'm in finance and I work late. And when I leave the building at 11 o'clock at night, and I had to go back one night to get some paperwork at one o'clock in the morning. Why are all the lights the on? Lights on. <laughs> I know. And I went and talked to some people and they said, that's just the way it is. And I said, well, that's the wrong answer. That's <laughs> You're right. The way it is. You're right. Where You're are right. the timers? We don't have timers. Okay. Then get timers. Right. It's, it's, you know, when you start to create that environment, mm-hmm. what you discover, these, there's so many things that you can look at that are really kind of no brainers. And some people will say, well, that doesn't matter or that that costs a lot. The truth is it doesn't cost a lot. Right. Most of these things don't cost a lot. It's just about, are you aware of them? Right. And are you passionate enough to fix them? And it's, and it's signals. It's a big signal. Of course. Now here's what I want to do. I'm going to take the one, two, three, because you're beginning to shift to back to office. So let's get into that if we can. I, I know everyone would like to know the 10 things about Unilever. We'll do that another time. We'll do that in a book. Um, but let's talk about back to office. And um, we're talking, we're, we're giving counsel to our clients. We're reading a lot. And, and uh, the first thing I was told was, don't call it back to work. Because we've been working really hard during the pandemic from our homes. And so the first thing, we're going to talk back to office. And so you have a very, very specific point of view about why this is a critical inflection point. And then we're going to talk about unlocking what could happen and should happen. So why is this so critical getting back to the office and doing it right? I... I and again, this is my point of view based on just a series of conversations that I have with people in different organizations, different industries, different organizations, different size of organizations. But there are a number of themes that start to emerge. So for me, you know, as painful as COVID has been, 
for many of us. It is also, the, to me, the great revealer. When one thinks about the fact that for many employees around the world, they've been away from the office for 14 or 15 months. They have been in consultation with their families. They have been in consultation with their colleagues. They've been doing all of their team calls on Zoom or whatever technology. They have talked to other people in other companies, right? They have had a moment of reflection that we may never see again, right? They are having deep thoughts about whether they are prepared to go back and do the same thing at the company that they work for. Are they prepared to make the same commute, right? They've started to think about their future. They've had a different relationship emerge with their kids, right? What I'm describing is I think that there is a depth of what's happened for employees that needs to be celebrated, understood. I think that a new dialogue needs to emerge where, you know, companies that, that have, com- have employees, you know, reconnect and, 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 and reemerge, if you will, uh, not using back to work, but just using different words. I think it's really, really incumbent upon companies to be sure that those voices, those stories, that pain, you know, if there has been joy, those stories are heard and cherished as a way of, you know, demonstrating empathy, demonstrating, you know, being open to that dialogue, um, being open to the idea that many ideas may emerge out of this period that will change the company forever going forward in terms of the way they do things now, as opposed to how they might change them going forward. And there's a whole, you know, there's a whole bunch of things around that. But I just, I just think this idea that it's the, it's been the great revealer, right? Mm-hmm. Great revealer right. of the human truth. And my truth during COVID is not yours, Carol. Your experience is not mine, right? But I think there's also a, a very dramatic risk that for some people in organizations, particularly those that are higher up in the organization, their, their experience at, su- at some levels, I'm not suggesting that there hasn't been pain, but at some level they've been able to go through COVID in a much different way than someone that works in a manufacturing facility. Those experiences have been completely different. Parents that have had homeschool and those that, you know, the list goes on and on and on. But, but in other words, what has been our shared experience? Let's put it out there. Let's just really talk about it. Let's have the, you know, multiple moments where it's not one and done. We'll talk about it for the first week and then we'll, then we'll move on. What are we going to now create? as a collective, as part of this experience, right? And I just, and, and, and to me, this is, the, this is the moment when purpose really shows up because purpose, whether it be corporate purpose, whether it be brand purpose, whether it be personal purpose, these things need time and space to germinate, right? This is now the moment for storytelling, right? Personal storytelling. And I'm just concerned that, you know, I'm concerned that what I'm hearing from a lot of people is they're, they don't feel as though they're being heard. They haven't heard from HR. They've been asked to do an anonymous survey, and that will somehow form the basis of how well everybody's doing. They're not having the, empathy, the empathetic conversations with their leaders, right? Yes, they're getting communication. Yes, they certainly are. But are they having it at a level of depth 
that's required for this moment in time. Mm, that's the point. And that's that, the key that point. Are they hearing it at the level of depth for this moment in time? This once in a century collective experience that we all went through and we're now questioning, as you said, do I want to continue this job? Do I want to stay in this company? Do I want to commute? Who am I? What am I? The epiphany that you went through in 1999 when you were locked, you know, locked overnight in a jail cell. This has been such a great conversation with my friend, Jonathan Atwood. He has just shared so many insights about Unilever's sustainable living plan and how it was embedded in the company and certainly shared it's not a straight line journey. I'm so excited about that portion of our conversation that we're going to go to part two. Part two is returning to work in the new normal. Post-pandemic, we're not going to go back to the way it was, but companies who are going to thrive going forward, they need to express the humanity that they were so careful to continue to support during the COVID pandemic. So please join us for part two, a great conversation with Jonathan Atwood.